Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. There's a lot of subjects that I'm interested in. I'm very interested in the psychological problems that people have. I'm very interested in the law, and I'm very interested in government systems. Our guest here today is here to talk about all of those things. She is an attorney and the executive director of the Connecticut Civil Rights Project, which provides legal services to low-income Connecticut citizens who suffer from psychological problems. Kathy Flaherty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And it's so, just Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Um, I think there are so many legal aid organizations in Connecticut that have some combination of legal rights, Connecticut <laughs> in their name. Um, so I just want to correct It's that. not the Civil Rights Project? No, it's the Legal Rights Project. Oh, okay. When That's I looked it up, it's... I found civil. I must have looked at the wrong source. Well, we do um, we do help people with their civil rights issues, but the name of the organization is CLRP. Oh, okay. So in addition to being an attorney, you've had psychological problems of your own, right? Can you tell us a little bit about them? When did they start? What was their nature? Sure. Um, and this is something that I've talked about for a long time. And I feel like I think about them very differently now um, in my sixth decade of life, in the middle of that, um, than I did when I was younger. I think um, I did struggle with what we commonly label depression and anxiety, really going back to elementary school. Uh, but nobody really looked at it as an issue because one it was the 70s and it was just like you're a kid shut up <laughs> you know your problems aren't real um just go to school do well in school and you have no problems and i was able to do well in school um and so nobody really perceived of kids mental health as an issue in the i would say early to mid 70s um did really well in high school go off to college. And that's where I really do get hit a lot more with issues with the depression and anxiety, especially my senior year of college. It did kick in so badly that I just couldn't get out of bed. I had a really hard time dragging myself to the science center. And I was a biochem major and, you know, started going to a counselor on campus. And that counselor suggested to me, why don't you just drop the thesis? And that was something that had never occurred to me that you could just drop something. Um, <laughs> and, but I did. Um, and that helped. And the reason, honestly, that I ended up going to law school is I took a couple of law related classes that I thought were really interesting. I always thought I was going to be a biochem major, some kind of scientist working in a lab, not having to talk to people, um, just doing my research. That's what I thought my life was going to be. And it turned out, obviously very different. Um, and so, you know, I go to law school and that's when I ended up committed to a psychiatric hospital, which I imagine is probably you have questions about that and what I think about that. I do. Um, I was actually, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> well, I was, before I was leaving for my first year of law school, in retrospect, if I were somebody who really believed totally of a medical model of mental health conditions or mental illness, I was starting to spin into a mania. Um, didn't know that at the time, um, but when I got to school, 
you know, I joined every student organization on campus. I had a really hard time sitting still in class, would skip class a lot, started a new student organization. Um, and, and one day, and I was seeing the psychiatrist because I had, you know, already been getting mental health treatment during college and, you know, started seeing the psychiatrist at the law school. And, you know, I remember one day the resident assistant in my dorm saying, you really need to buckle down and do your work. You know, you're here to be a student. You're here to study. You should be briefing the cases and doing your homework and all that. And I very flippantly told her, get off my back or I'm going to jump off the roof of the law school library. Not anything I had any intention of doing, wouldn't even know how to get up to it, but I'd made that comment and, you know, she did her job, you know, and she reported that to the school psychiatrist. And the next time I went for an appointment, uh, my dad was there and the psychiatrist told me I'm putting you in the hospital, to which I said, with some profanity um, that she wasn't. And I walked out into the waiting arms of the Harvard University Police Department. And I was brought to the hospital, um, despite the fact that I had no desire to go to a hospital, um, didn't know you could be forced into a hospital against your will, um, read the brochure on the ambulance ride out to Belmont, Massachusetts, uh, that talked about if you sign yourself into the hospital, you can sign yourself out. So technically, I did sign for a voluntary admission, revoked it immediately. Um, they petitioned the district court for my civil commitment, and I had a I had a hearing, and I lost, um, and I was committed for up to six months. Um, was discharged on the 60th day of my hospitalization, uh, which just happened to align perfectly with the length of my coverage under my student health plan. Forced into oh, wow. a mandatory, yeah, forced into a mandatory leave. Um, was able to come back to school the following year with some conditions on my admission. Graduated on time, you know, but then faced some difficulties getting admitted to practice law here in Connecticut. Which so uh, you're somebody that is suffering with anxiety and depression. You make a flippant comment about jumping off the roof, and then you're committed against your will. I know that, that technically you signed in, but regardless, you're kept against your will. I can't imagine that was helpful to your anxiety and your depression. So what, what, how, how did you react emotionally to be, basically being in prison? Um, you're right. And I think that's one thing that people don't recognize about how traumatic these forced hospitalizations can be. Um, you know, did they succeed um, once they started giving me medication? Because I, I resisted that once, got forced medicated once and was like, I don't really like needles, so I'll take the pills, but like kind of completely under protest um, because otherwise they would have just given, kept giving me injections, which I did not like. Um, I think there were better ways of handling it. Um, I do know that one of the things that I think the system teaches you once you especially experience the involuntary parts of the psychiatric care in air quotes um, system that you learn that you can't be honest with people because if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time you can and will be deprived of your liberty sure whether that means like your physical being living in the community 
or whether that means somebody giving you medication that you have not given informed consent to, um, whether it means being restrained or secluded, um, all of which has happened to me. Um, did they succeed in knocking down the mania part of the manic depression? Yes. Um, so I'll give them credit for that. Do I think I needed to be in the hospital two months for that to happen? No, I, it was a different world. And I don't know that if the same things were going on now that it necessarily would have been that long a hospitalization or that a hospitalization would have happened at all. Because remember, this was the fall of 1990. Um, and I think insurance drives so much of, at least for people who have private health insurance, drives so much of that part of the system. Um, but it did, it really kind of pulled the rug out from under me in terms of who I thought I was, um, in terms of how I thought the world worked. Um, I did not know that you could be made to go to a hospital when you didn't want to go. I, I had no conception of the fact that you could say to somebody, I don't want to be here and you can't just walk away because one, the doors are locked. Um, and I always tell people that, you know, the, the big difference between going to an emergency room for a physical condition and going to the emergency room for a mental health condition is you go, you know, say you broke your arm or whatever, and the wait's taking too long and you just decide you want to go because you don't feel like sitting around there anymore that day, you can leave against medical advice. You're not allowed to do that when you've showed up for a psychiatric reason. Right. Um, and they can detain you. Um, and I, I just wish more people understood that for psychiatry can be incredibly harmful. Sure. Yeah, and have oh, long lasting impact. Yeah, you, you you can you, see you yeah, this happened. You're being imprisoned without a trial, without a conviction. Right. You've done nothing illegal, but yet you're being <laughs> in prison. So as a result of the injustice that you suffered, is that what made you go into law? Well, I was already at law school. Okay. I knew I wanted to be a legal aid lawyer. Um, so I knew I, I really wanted to, that was the kind of law, because I got to look at my application uh, a few years later when I was trying to get admitted to the bar. I had kind of forgotten what I had written on my law school application. But I had said that I wanted to go to law school to be a legal aid lawyer. So I knew I was going to be working with a, a, popula a marginalized, oppressed population. Um, but I didn't know that there were organizations like Connecticut Legal Rights Project when I went to law school. And it turns out that when I went back to law school for my second first year and then was interviewing for summer internship positions, I interviewed at a, another legal aid program in Connecticut, disclosed my mental health history and what had happened to me. And very grateful that person who was interviewing me said, we'd hire you, but I think you'd like working at this other place more. And he literally photocopied the legal aid directory page for Connecticut Legal Rights Project. And I got to do an internship there in the summer of 92. Um, so it took decades for me to end up back there um, on staff. I had served on the board for a while and was chair of their board for a while. Uh, but was really thrilled to finally say yes when I was asked to come back in 2014 and really am fortunate to lead a, a team of dedicated people who really care about the rights of people with mental health conditions in Connecticut. So has your diagnosis or your diagnoses, ha have they impacted your 
I want to, I don't want to say ability because I'm not suggesting that it affected your ability to practice law, but it has it affected your ability to enter the field of practicing law. In other words, have, has anybody put up blocks to stop you um, because yeah. of your diagnoses? Can you tell us about that, please? Sure. Um, and I know the Connecticut Bar Examining Committee probably doesn't enjoy that I continue to talk about this 25 years later, but there's a reason that I do. Um, at the time that I took the, the Connecticut Bar Exam, I, we still had paper applications. So I, people have to remember it was a different era. And I remember flipping through the application and coming to a series of questions that asked if you've been diagnosed with one of a list of various diagnoses. Um, and my answer to that question was yes. And then, you know, have you been, I think the question was, have you been hospitalized for the for the treatment of that? My answer to that, of course, was yes. You know, has it impacted your schooling? My answer to that was yes. You know, like, so all these questions. And I remember seeing them and literally throwing the application across the room and then calling my friends at CLRP saying, how can they even legally ask these kind of questions? And people told me, well, you really have one of two choices that one, you know, these are the questions that they came to after they had already been sued by somebody else about the questions. Um, and so my choices were either I could sue or I could answer the questions and see what happened. And at that point, I had also applied to be admitted in New York and Massachusetts. Those bars asked slightly different questions, but I didn't have an issue getting admitted in either of those states. Um, it was only my home state of Connecticut that put barriers to my admission. I passed the exam. I got a letter saying, congratulations for passing the exam, but you're not being recommended for admission at this time. And that's when you're like, what? <laughs> and so, you know, there were meetings with a local committee, um, one of which went completely disastrously. Um, and then another meeting with the local committee where um, my uncle, who had been a practicing lawyer for decades, came with me to that. And then we had a meeting with a statewide committee. And unfortunately, the questions that they asked were so, they had the same biases that everybody else does about people with mental health conditions. Yeah. And really a huge lack of understanding about what it would mean to have a mental health diagnosis or, or you know, diagnosis or diagnoses and what they thought helped were not actually things that help people and what they thought was the proper solution was not a great solution either. But ultimately at the end of the day, I wasn't finally admitted to the bar, but I was admitted conditionally uh, for the first nine years of my admission. I The condition was that I stay compliant with the treatment that was recommended by my psychiatrist. Um, and also that I had to submit an affidavit twice a year that I was compliant and that my psychiatrist had to submit a letter twice a year that I was compliant. Um, and that went on for, for nine years. The process is different now. They do not ask questions about mental health the way they used to. And they also time limit the conditional admissions, uh, which was something that I had asked for. I said, you know, one, I think it's stupid, but like, I'm willing to do it for a certain amount of time. Can we put a time limit on it? And they were like, absolutely not. That's not the procedure. You know, the procedure is, is that you petition the court to remove the conditions. And what really happened is I, for better, for worse, just complied with the conditions for, you know, 
eight, nine years. And then finally, a new person came in who was the statewide bar council. And he announced at the Connecticut Bar Association's legal conference that they hold every year that they were monitoring a bunch of conditional admissions that they didn't really think needed to be monitored anymore. And they were wanted to change their processes up. And I, I just went up to him after the thing, the presentation. I said, I think I'm one of those people. He said, what's your name? And I told him, he said, yeah, you are one of them. And I'm like, what do I have to do to get rid of it? He's like, you have to file a petition with the court. So we did. There wasn't even a hearing at the end. They just like, you know, conditions gone. And so I've just been, it, it's, and I think that's, that's the frustrating thing because I did have additional struggles during those nine years um, and being compliant with the medication isn't what helped me get through it, you know, yeah. um, because the medication is not a panacea. Um, but that was what the bar thought. Um, so the lesson that I'm taking from this is don't tell anybody when you're having psychological problems. I mean, this caused you problems at school. You ended up being held against your will. It interfered with your ability to practice law. So you could have avoided all of it just by not seeking any help, not telling anybody about it. And that's and, the, the problem with unintended consequences because other people learn that lesson. And, and uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think one of the one of the things that I I tried to point out to them numerous times while I was going through this process is that the only people they were catching in this net were people who had actually gotten help and managed to get through law school and managed to pass the bar exam. So if I had never gotten help or had not made it through law school or not passed the bar, they wouldn't be doing this kind of inquiry. Um, however, like where you get caught in that, especially when you're applying for admission to the bar, is if I had lied to those questions, you are filling out that application under penalty of perjury. Yeah. So every once in a while, people say, well, why didn't you just say no to all those questions? I'm like, because I literally would have been lying on my application for admission to the bar. And why would you want that? Like, I know people sure. jokingly say lawyers are professional liars, but like, why would you want that to be the first thing that I officially yeah. do? And I had answered the question, and that was one of the questions that I remember people on the, the bar examining committee asked me. They're like, well, did you disclose in these other states? And I said, well, actually, I did. You know, they didn't ask questions that were as intrusive, but they asked things like, have you ever been a party to a court action? And because I was civilly committed, I was, so I disclosed that. And neither other state, neither, you know, Massachusetts nor New York, put any barrier in my admission. And the response I got to that was, well, we're Connecticut and we do things differently because <laughs> we're Connecticut. You know, That's it, Connecticut for you. Your experience, it's it reminds me of my experience being incarcerated because when you do the right thing, you end up in and when you're incarcerated, oftentimes getting punished. Where I could lie or I could sneak around and get all you know types of benefits in prison, but by being honest and doing what's right, I end up watching the guys who are lying and sneaking around reap benefits while I'm locked in a cell. And it can be demoralizing at times. And I can imagine it's the same thing. Listen, I'm doing what's right. I'm being honest. I'm forthcoming about the, the problems that I'm having. And now you're punishing me for it instead of just allowing me to get help. I'm, you know, I'm being punished. I don't know how else to put it. And so 
now beyond your own personal struggles with this, with your own psychological problems, with this system, you are now working to help others navigate this system, others who are having this problem, right? So how, what have your experiences been like with your clients dealing with the, the mental health system? Well, I, one of the things that I, I want to say and, and need to get on the record is that the people really helping folks navigate the system as the system are really my colleagues who are really on the front lines. As executive director, I do have a few cases that I'm handling myself, but most of the time I'm doing the policy work. So looking at the bigger picture of things. But what I will say, because I, I have been a person who over the course of years before I came to CLRP, have been like a peer support group facilitator, trainer, things like that, is I listen to people. And I think that's something that the system doesn't always do. And sometimes it's because the system doesn't have time to do it. And the way we run our systems doesn't create the space for that to happen. But I will have conversations with people and say, well, you know, if what you're doing isn't seeming to work to get you where you want to go, have you considered trying other things? And then people will say, well, yes, and that didn't work. And I'm like, well, what else might there be for you? Um, there are times where I will say, like, I sometimes wish people made different decisions, but as a lawyer, especially with this kind of stuff, those are not my decisions to make, you know, because my clients have to live their lives yes. and they have, they have to deal with the consequences intended or unintended of, of the different choices that they make. So really what I can do is listen to what it is that they want to achieve, try to figure out if there's a strategy or a path through the legal system and what those different paths might be, give them advice about what the potential consequences of different courses of action might be. Um, and then answer people's questions. Um, because sometimes people will want to do something which is not something that I necessarily think is the right choice or the better choice or um, a choice that I would make, but it's not my choice. Okay. This is kind of amorphous because I really don't know what the specifics you're talking about. So if you're okay. representing, say you're representing a client and this client has sought you know, treatment or sought help for their, their problems and now they're facing civil commitment, would you be involved in something like that? Would you, would your organization be involved in defending somebody like that? The only reason we would usually not be is because we exist under a consent decree. And when people have the opportunity to get a court appointed lawyer, um, which anybody who is subject to a civil commitment petition is, um, we would not be directly doing that representation. We could certainly okay. collaborate with the court appointed attorney. Um, but I have represented clients in civil commitments that are not at the state hospitals. Okay. So, so what are the type of the clients that you represent? What are yeah. the types of issues that they're trying to navigate through that your organization is helping them with? I, there are different kinds of things. There are people who are in the hospital who, while they're in the hospital, the rights that they have under the patient's bill of rights are being violated. So okay. we help people deal with that. Um, we help people... Um, who are trying to get out of the hospital. And, you know, if the the hospital isn't doing everything they can to move somebody towards discharge, 
we can certainly participate in treat. And when I say we, I mean the collective we of sure. Connecticut Legal Rights Project, not myself. Um, but going to treatment plan meetings and, you know, trying to get the hospital on record. What is the barrier to discharge? Have we identified it? What are you trying to do to address it? You know, what opportunities in terms of various um, areas of the state where the person might want to live? Are we exploring those? Um, because the I think one thing people don't know is that the average length of stay in our state hospitals is measured in years. Um, I think most people think of, you know, the people that they know who have private insurance, who maybe go to the Institute of Living or Middlesex Health or another Yale private hospital and are there for a couple of weeks. When people are in the public system, they literally are in the hospital. Average length of stay is years. Okay. So you're representing somebody and you want to help them to expedite their discharge from a hospital. When you deal, whether directly with that hospital or in court, are do you find these hospitals or their representatives, are they helpful in this process? Are they impediments? I mean, are, are, there, are there records readily forthcoming? What is it like to deal with these bureaucracies that I'm guessing you have to deal with in these situations? And I think it's kind of all of the above because systems are run by people. And I think, sure. you know, different people do their jobs differently. And I think sometimes we are collaborators with the hospital staff because everybody realizes that really everybody is there to help this person move on with their life. And we figure out how to work together. But to are they really, forward. Kathy? Are no, they really? Because you, say... but you said, to, you got to let me finish. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Other times I would say that they can be the barrier. Um, because they, you know, I think when people don't realize that when, you know, cause we're not clinicians, but like yeah. for the people who are clinical people, it's like, if you break down that person's trust and they just never build an alliance with you or never feel an alliance with you, you're not going to make progress. Um, so there's elements of the system itself that are just really problematic, the bigger barrier, and this is why I say there are opportunities to be much better collaborators that I think people don't always take advantage of. The biggest barrier really for our folks getting out of the hospital is the lack of affordable housing combined with wraparound services. If folks at the hospital realized that we could actually be more effective partners in advocating for stuff in the community to be better, that would be really great. But sometimes things become, in my opinion, unnecessarily adversarial. Yes. Um, and because I think people sometimes just get defensive right away. It's like, oh, right. you're asserting your rights and you call the lawyer. Therefore, you have now become my enemy. And it it shouldn't be that way. But I think sometimes it does play out that way in reality. See, the way that I see the problem there is this, is if I go to Burger King, right? The people that work at Burger King know that I'm the customer and I'm the one that they have to serve, right? The same is true if I hire a carpenter, a electrici an electrician, whatever. When people have a customer that they know they have to serve, they tend to perform better than when they don't. Not perfectly, not in every instance, but nevertheless. So when I was in prison, Obviously, us inmates are not the customer. So our complaints largely fall on deaf ears. 
And sometimes that's not even a bad thing because sometimes the complaints, quite frankly, are ridiculous. But nonetheless, our complaints aren't heard. The problem is the customer in that case is the general public who never sees any of what's happening inside the prison. So they can't be served either. So we just end up with an entrenched bureaucracy that is served better by people being in prison than getting out of prison. And you end up with a disaster that I've documented already. So I'm not going to go into too much depth here. But nonetheless, it seems to me that in this case, you have entrenched interests that are they have jobs that are based on the fact that people are being held in hospitals or being treated in hospitals. That person in that case is not the customer. They're looked at in many cases, maybe as crazy. I'm sure they're not labeled as such, or maybe they are. I, I shouldn't be sure they're not, but so their complaints are probably falling on deaf ears as well. And a lawyer that's hired to advocate for, for them is looked at as well. This is, you know, a hired gun essentially and so I'd imagine you're there's no nobody's interest is directly tied to expediting nobody. I should say this. Nobody in power to actually do something about it has their interest directly tied to facilitating the release of these people. Right. So you end up with a rabbit hole, essentially, which, of course, is the title of my book. But I don't know what else to to, to call it, where. There's no way to sort of facilitate these things accurately. Now, these are, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are either state run or state financed hospitals, correct? Well, the the facilities that we work in yes. are state operated facilities that are okay. staffed by Demas employees. The private hospital system, you know, are private hospitals that are, you know, paid for by insurance companies and like sure. private pay or whatever. So yeah, we are working within a, a, a state operated system um, or in the case of the private nonprofit community providers, a state funded system. I, what I think is really interesting and this may start getting at your question um, is like, who is the quote unquote customer? Sure. I have never actually thought of correction, like as me as a member of a, the general public being the customer of the Department of Corrections, but I totally can see that. The most frustrating thing that I think a lot of people don't know is that you don't really have an affirmative legal right, like a legally enforceable right to the treatment of your choice. That is one thing we do not have here. What we have is a system where if you are getting services from either an inpatient, outpatient, public or private, we have a series of rights under the patient's bill of rights okay. that do say, you know, you are entitled to humane and dignified treatment. You are supposed to have discharge planning that begins upon admission. There are, you know, right to have your own possessions, clothing, things like that, you know, rights during searches, um, rights to communication access all that's supposed to happen while you're getting those services. But there's a very big difference between that and, oh, excuse me, like enforcing the right to treatment of your choice. The other thing, of course, is under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you have the right to receive treatment in the, the least restrictive setting and, um, you know, entitled to reasonable modifications of policies, practices, and procedures. And some of those things are the the topics of pending litigation right now. 
um, against the department. See, this whole thing sounds to me. So you start off, you give the government the power, not you, but the, the society or whoever chose these people has given the government the power to civilly commit people, to lock people up who have not been committed of a crime. Then to try to rectify that problem, they create laws. They come up with the Patients' Bill of Rights. They come up with the American with Disabilities Act. And it seems like they just, and then of course, within each one of those things, you end up with bureaucrats who have to administer those laws within these, and then those people become entrenched. And it just keeps going and going and going as government keeps sticking its ugly head more and more. And it seems to me that the solution is not more of that, but less of it. Let's take away the government's ability to put people behind, you know, behind locked doors who have committed no crime. Start rolling back the government bureaucracies, create a system whereby the these hospitals are directly accountable to the customers, the patients that they have to serve, and we'd probably be much better off. So do you- I, I, I can't disagree with that, Michael. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the state of the existing law is, you know, that ability of government to deprive people of their liberty for their own good, you know, is the parent's patriae power, you know, they're, they're acting in the place of a parent. And, you know, that is something that has really existed in the law almost all along, you know, so you really would have to unravel a lot of things. I personally believe that forced psychiatry should end. You know, I think people, if people want services, if people want supports, if people want treatment, we have to have it there so it's available for people. But I don't think it, it actually serves anybody in the long run when we force people into it, when we coerce people into it. And people view that as the solution because it's all they know. You know, it's sort sure. of like people are incapable of imagining a different way of doing things. Very but the true. reality is, is that a lot of times, you know, people get civilly committed because people think they're a danger to themselves or others. Um, and especially for the danger to self, that's a conversation that even some psychiatrists are having is they are realizing that putting people in hospitals to protect them from themselves actually can do a whole series of harms to people. Sure. And there are studies that show that the, the suicide risk goes up after one of those involuntary hospitalizations. Well, yeah, well, that seems ridiculous. You're going to harm yourself, so we're going to beat you to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it, it's absurd that to think that one person or group of people has the right to decide by non-objective standards, because it's not as if they're taking a blood test that tells them for certain this person's a harm to themselves. And they're certainly not reading the minority report that's telling them who's going to commit dangerous acts. But but by their assessment, which psychiatrists often disagree amongst themselves in their diagnoses and in their assessment assessments, so they find the guy that or the, the the lady who's going to give this diagnosis, and then they incarcerate somebody for it is palpably absurd. So, Kathy, before I let you go, I want to make sure that you you've gotten everything that you feel needs to be said on the subject because I'm not the expert that you are. So I'm sure I, I you know there's a good chance I've missed something. So is there anything that I've missed that you want to tell people about the, these issues that we've been discussing? 
I, I, one thing that I think we haven't touched on at all is, um, you know, what happens to people who are acquitted of a crime by reason of mental disease or defect, what a lot of people colloquially call not guilty by reason of insanity, um, because that is a population of people where all the conversation we've had about reentry from the criminal legal system and people yeah. coming out of corrections and back to the, back to society those folks have really been left out of that conversation. You know, there was a bill pending this session that would have changed the legal process for people at the end of their term of commitment to the PSRB to align. Hold with, on. What is the PSRB? That, thank you for stopping me. PSRB stands for Psychiatric Security Review Board. It is a board of six people who are appointed by the governor who um, make decisions about where people who have been found not guilty of a crime by reason of mental disease or defect should get treatment and for how okay. long. Um, it was a system that was put into place um, after the John Hinckley verdict. Um, and, you know, after a super unfortunate incident that happened in Middletown when a patient who was at CVH um, walked off campus, walked to downtown and, and murdered a, a nine-year-old girl. Oh. Um, and after that, cause that was a point where people were in the hospital a long time, but they had these very high level passes and had freedom to like leave the hospital, come back. Um, but everybody got pulled back into the hospital. So then you have this group of political appointees who were, when it was created was for the sole protection of society. So if you actually really think about who are the customers of the PSRB, the customers of PSRB were literally society because that was their mandate. Sure. One of one of the changes in recent years was to also add in the safety and well-being of the equity. So one could argue that they have two customers. What is the equity? The equity is the person who's been acquitted of a crime by reason of mental disease or defect, the person who's been found not guilty. Okay. By the way, I empathize with you because for years I've been doing interviews and I throw around terms like COs and DOC and, yeah. P, and it's, I'll be asked, well, what is that? And I just yeah. assume everybody knows, everybody knows. The, yeah. the vernacular and, is so common to me and the people that I've been around. So I just figure everyone knows what no, it is. And it's such a good reminder, Michael, that whenever we are talking within our little groups or our little silos, that we have a whole language that the rest of the world <laughs> has no idea about. Yeah. So thank you for the reminder and I, I try to do a better job of that um and so I think you know really uh, we were trying to get some equality of process similarity of process uh because the way it is now you just have this group of six people who make these decisions and what has happened for a lot of people who have been found not guilty by reason of insanity they're literally spending decades incarcerated in Demas facilities when had they been found guilty of the crime and served time in Department of Corrections, they would have been back. They would have returned. The door would have opened and they'd eventually be let out. Um, so we're trying to get some more similarity in the process. Um, and, you know, I think that's a conversation that we've really been having the last several years and in, in partnering with the other folks who are doing criminal legal system reform. You know, I think, you know, what show, what happened for you personally, what happens for other people, most people who commit crimes do return to society. Sure. I think it's 95%. So, right. So 
why are we doing things that hurts people during the time that they're locked up, knowing that someday they will come back and be our neighbors? And I really wish more people would understand this is why we're trying to change the system, not simply for the benefit of the people who are locked up in these in the system, no. but really for all of us. Yes, because I'm people glad are you said that. Absolutely. Um, and, and I know you understand that. And I, I hope your listeners do. I want to appreciate you because I know I listened to uh, I don't remember the name of the guest, but, you know, Thomas Saw's Under Fire. I actually yes. did buy a used copy of that book. <laughs> So I could read it because Dr. I, Jeffrey I, I, Shaler's who you're talking that's about. That's right. Yes. I, I got the book um, awesome. because I listened to your show. Um, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's on my pile of books to be read. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate the time and the conversation. Thank you so much, Kathy. So where can people find you? People can find us online at CLRP for Connecticut Legal Rights Project dot org. Um, if people who need an intake, we do have a toll-free number, which is 877-402-2299. And for anyone who's still on Twitter, I am there at ConConnection, C-O-N-N-C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, Kathy, thank you very much for taking your time to be with us today. For now, this is The Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Until next time.